Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Offside with me, Taylor Twalman. It's been a week of international break, which means TT got a break. I've been home. I've been home for eight straight sleeps. But that doesn't mean Inter-Miami got to go home. Well, they did, but they had to play a game. They played Sporting Kansas City. one of 10 MLS teams to play last weekend. And in those five games, only Inter-Miami and the Portland Timbers came out with wins. The other three played out to draws. Huge wins for Inter-Miami against Sporting Kansas City, missing eight players. And the Portland Timbers handed LAFC their third straight loss. The full-time whistle goes. Portland's playoff push is alive. Miles Joseph's side win two straight at home. And they continue to ascend the Western Conference on another difficult away day for LAFC. A KG weekend, all about survival. This weekend, uh uh-uh. We've got a massive weekend in Major League Soccer coming up. I'll be in Atlanta for Atlanta United versus Inter-Miami with 70,000 of my closest friends. We've got the Philadelphia Union versus FC Cincinnati. Orlando City versus Columbus and El Trafico, LAFC versus the LA Galaxy. Today we're going to spend most of our time talking about the U.S. men's national team last two games with Uzbekistan and Oman. I've got my good friend, special guest Tim Howard joining us. We'll also answer some of your questions about the league and I'm sure one of those questions is going to be about the New England Revolution. Before we begin taking questions from the media, I just want to start by addressing the news this weekend that Bruce Arena has resigned as sporting director and head coach of the Revolution. For any questions you may have related to Saturday's news or the MLS investigation, I'll refer you to the statement issued by MLS, the statement issued by Bruce, and the statement issued by the club. And we'll defer to the league for any future questions regarding their investigation. For those of you just joining the Major League Soccer party, I am the all-time leading goal scorer with the New England Revolution. I lost four MLS Cups with the New England Revolution. I've lived in Boston for 20-plus years. It's been a sad, sad eight weeks, ten weeks, but especially the last two weeks for me as an alumni of the New England Revolution. And I want to make this abundantly clear. If Bruce Arena had not made any insensitive comments, we're not even talking about this. We're probably talking about, in all seriousness, the New England Revolution really contending with FC Cincinnati and the Supporter Shield. But we're not. We're talking about a mess, a mess of a situation that started and ends with Bruce Arena making insensitive comments. But on July 30th, the New England Revolution released the statement that Bruce Arena was put on administrative leave, but then there was nothing. Nothing. No news whatsoever. And for the fans that are hitting me up, for news anchors and reporters saying we need more transparency— There's different levels of transparency. First off, it is not our right to know what Bruce Arena said. You have to, during this process, protect the victim. You have to. But that's not the point of this conversation. The point of this conversation is on July 30th, when you release a statement and say, Bruce Arena is being put on administrative leave. You know what you should do right afterwards? On August 1st, hold a press conference and say this. These allegations are serious. We're going to go through the process of digesting this and figuring it out. We want to protect 
the victims, and we want to find out what exactly happened. As we do that, and as we come across more information, we will give that to you as it comes. But until then, our team is really close to chasing the Supporters' Shield with FC Cincinnati. It is really close to being the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. So we've got to make sure that the players are at the forefront. They are not collateral damage. Brad Stevens and the Boston Celtics with their situation with the Dame Doku. Why not just do that? Why not get out in front of it? That's where I'm coming from. I just wish leadership in the moment, in a crisis, just owned up to it, was transparent as much as they could, but made it about a record-setting season with attendance, which, by the way, has been fantastic to see from the Revolution, arguably one of the best rosters they've ever seen. But instead... Everything about the revolution is in a negative light, and it didn't need to be. Bruce Arena made insensitive comments. You said that on July 30th. On August 1st, I just wish the revolution and the leadership got out in front of it and made it about the players in this season. Because I promise you this, if they did so, I wouldn't be talking about it. You wouldn't be talking about it, and we would be talking about the New England Revolution and how they are all of a sudden a big major player in the Boston sports market for the right reasons. The other big topics this week, U.S. men's national team, Greg Berhalter. I want to transition to that, especially with Tim Howard joining us. So this past week, we were treated to two looks at the U.S. men's national team back under Greg Berhalter and his return as the manager. Now, some people are calling it Greg 2.0 after his reappointment. Now, first Saturday, a 3-0 win over Uzbekistan in St. Louis. But don't be deceived by the scoreline. This was not easy work for the men. Now, I get it as Uzbekistan actually tied Mexico 3-3. So it makes the scoreline a little bit more interesting, but Tim Weah opened up the scoring with a fantastic finish in the fourth minute. And now driven straight in for the opening goal of the game from Tim Weah. But it's also a game where Matt Turner had to keep up his game with big saves until it was finally settled in stoppage time. The prodigal son returns. Ricardo Pepe curled one in from the edge of the box, and then Pulisic's penalty smoothed the edges over as the United States men beat Uzbekistan 3-0. And now with a chance at the end of stoppage time to make it three. And a scoreline that looks a little more comfortable than the reality of this afternoon in St. Louis. Now Tuesday night against Oman, better game, better showing, better scoreline. Balogun got us going early, scoring from close range, right place, right time. That's a knack goal scorers have. Either you got it or you don't. You can't teach that. It took then an hour to wear down the Oman defense. Again, a Brendan Aronson free kick. Boy, this was brutal defending. It crept in. Doesn't matter to Brendan Aronson. Doesn't matter to Greg Berhalter or the United States. But exhausted-looking Oman were hit for two more. One of those, Ricardo Pepe. And it's 4-0 is the final score. Now, these friendlies early in the cycle are not always easy to draw conclusions. So today, I called a buddy of mine, Tim Howard, the Secretary of Defense, the former U.S. men's national team goalkeeper turned analyst to help us draw some takeaways from this international window. 
Tim, appreciate you taking the time joining us. Before we get into the return of Greg Berhalter, the U.S. men's national team, and what that looks like, you are up for the Hall of Fame. I am a voter on the <laughs> Hall of Fame, so you've got to convince me in the next 20 seconds of why you deserve to get in on the first ballot, my man. I thought we've already agreed that if I come on the podcast, I get your vote. <laughs> so, I, listen, listen, it, it's, the congratulations are amazing. Thank you. But it just means that I'm old enough now to be considered. So, no, listen. It's unbelievable. Last year, Steve Tarundolo went in. This year, you're going to go in. Tim, it's honestly, it just makes us feel old. Dude, yeah. it wasn't that long ago. We were part of these camps and friendlies and doing the whole nine yards, and now here we are. I got to vote whether or not <laughs> you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Come on, man. Amazing. It's amazing. It's just, you know, I think it's a fun, when you look back on your career, it just gives you that opportunity because once you stop playing, as you know, that's all you got left is those memories and, and the friendships yep. you made and, and legacy. So pretty happy about that. Tim, throughout your career, you and I were together for a lot of it. The second stint of a national team manager, Bruce Arena, in the 06 World Cup qualifying, going into the 06 World Cup, Greg Berhalter now makes his return. Before we get into the individual performances, what was your initial thought when Greg Berhalter returned for a second stint? Because I'm on the record, and I'll make it abundantly clear, I don't think second stints, especially back-to-back, -back, yeah. should happen sure. because I think it becomes stale, and I think athletes need to hear new messages and so I was very shocked that Greg Berhalter, after the Reina thing and yep, everything yep. else, came back for a second stint. Mm -hmm. Where were you with him bringing brought back? Um, yeah, I, I'm in that camp as well. I, I, I think when you look at national teams and the dynamic of a national team and bringing players in and out and you're not getting them for a whole lot of time really throughout the course of four years, I, I do think a, a national team manager outside of extenuating circumstances, should get four years. And then after that, you mm -hmm. have to move along uh, to hear new messages, to try and upgrade the team and push them in a new direction. The only caveat to Greg, Greg Bolger this time around is, and I've heard this argument, it's a young team. It's a very young team. It's a team that yep. he kind of brought through. And and so yeah, maybe there is an argument that he gets another crack at it. And so I'm not, I'm certainly not opposed to that either. I just think the danger in it is with with the such high profile toxicity with Gio Reyna, the process of of bringing him back. There's not a lot of wiggle room here. This just just seems like uh, U.S. soccer kind of backed themselves into a corner now, and you know I, I obviously hope it goes well. There's no question about that because it's a it's an incredibly talented team, right? And you and I were teammates with Greg Berhalter, and yeah. obviously seeing what he did with the first stint and how it went, you bring up the most important point from my perspective. It is one of the youngest teams, if not the youngest team ever. Obviously, 90 World Cup is a different scenario because the U.S. men's national team wasn't part of World Cups sure. for so many years. Sure. And so you do want some continuity yep. there. My concern is big names were omitted from that team. You had some controversy with Giovanni Reina, Ricardo Pepe. You don't have a phone call with Giovanni Reina. It's now been reported in the Vanity Fair that you need a mediator to help you guide <laughs> through that. Yeah, Tim, I'm struggling with that aspect of it just because when you really think about that concept, I'm of the mindset you've ripped the Band-Aid off and get it done with and get yourself into it where you roll up your sleeves and do it. Are you still surprised that Giovanni Reyna and Greg Berhalter haven't had a conversation? Uh, incredibly surprised. I think that when football is simple, 
It is. It is. It's simple, and human beings make mistakes, and mm -hmm. managers are there to manage people, to manage young men, to manage men. And and I find it very difficult that a conversation hasn't hasn't been had because, uh, as I've always said, it's like it the the soccer side is simple, you know, not to veer too far away, but but Jaden Sancho and and Eric Ten Hag and Man United, there's a discrepancy. Yes, there yes. is no discrepancy. Yes, there is no discrepancy. There's one player who isn't training up to standards. It's simple. You go, see, you go speak to the manager. What do I need to do? I need to hit the target more. I need to come inside more. I need to pass the ball to a red yep. shirt more. It's yep. very simple. I mean, so football is simple, particularly in a team aspect. And I think this one, for as crazy as it all got, I think you start there. I think that's where the conversation is. And maybe maybe I'm diluting it too much, but maybe the conversation starts there. Listen, we all screwed up in this situation. We've drawn a line under it. Let's move on. You're a brilliant player. I'm the manager of this team. Let's have at it. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, though, because you know as well as I do, Tim Ream, Tyler Adams, the players that have spoken about it said the players handled mm -hmm. Giovanni Reyna moping, pouting, whatever it may be. The players mm -hmm. handled that. Mm -hmm. So like you said, just rip the Band-Aid off. Mm -hmm. I get it. It's complicated. But I think the sooner it happens, the better it is for both Greg Berhalter but also for Giovanni Reina and U.S. soccer. So then you, me, everyone else, they're done talking Lucky about you. it. You move on. Look at Ricardo Pepe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ricardo Pepe is a huge omission for the World Cup team. Uh -huh. What has he done since then? Every single time he steps on the field, he's putting the ball in the back of the net, whether he's coming off the bench, whether he's starting. Just get it done with, get it over with, get the drama out of the way, and let's talk about the football, the soccer side of things versus – the dramatic side of things are off the well, field. Well, I mean, lastly on on Geo, and I think with the team and the leadership, and I, and I don't I don't question individuals on leadership, but I do question the leadership of the group, and because it is a young group, and it's hard to lead when you're young. Boy, do I know that. But I do think when I look at teams that I've been on, particularly national teams, you know the ins and outs. You, there, there is no conversation or lack thereof that you don't know. Everyone speaks inside of a team, and I know on any team that I've played on. For the U.S. Men's National Team, if arguably our best player, and and please nobody call in or text in or write in that Gio Reyna isn't hands down one of the best U.S. top three players that they have right now, I want him on the field. Yep. I want him on the field. Yep. If I'm back there in goal or I'm a center back or I'm a number six, I'm saying, why? Mm -hmm. We got to have our guy. We got to have our guy in here. Let's figure this out. And so that can be leadership, senior voices, and I'm not certain that they have mm -hmm. that currently. Because they are so young. And you said it best. You said collective leadership. That's a massive point, Tim. It's a massive point. It's something nobody talks about because oftentimes we just look at the person wearing the captain's armband. That's not, no, it's not. It's often the guys not wearing the armband that are your real leaders, the loud vocal ones, whatever it may be. Collective leadership is a huge one. I want to transition to these games against Uzbekistan and Oman right. because it is Greg Berhalter's return. Mm -hmm. But more so, the A team's kind of been back and we're seeing a lot of guys. Yeah. Let, let's start in goal, right? Matt Turner's made an unbelievable transition from where he was at Fairfield, undrafted, uh, goes to the Revolution, now makes it to Arsenal, moves on to Nottingham Forest. You've done this different ways with your youth. You were more highly touted, but it doesn't matter. You've moved from Major League Soccer to England yep. to being the number one. Is there anyone in this pool that's going to challenge Matt Turner as the number one right now? I say no. Um not currently, no. You know, I think Zach Steffen still, for me, when I look at what he is physically as a goalkeeper, man, that, that, that kid, 
that kid has it all. He 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 has more athleticism and a better body of anybody who stepped in and worn the U.S. shirt in the history of, of U.S. goalkeeping. Now he, I think he's that physically gifted. Can he put it all together? I know at the moment he's dealing with some injuries and stuff, but ultimately, you know, if he becomes a hot hand at some point, I think he can challenge Matt, but big credit to Matt. You know, and I, I think it, it is a very similar journey to me. He's gone over from Major League Soccer, gone to a huge club, didn't play a ton, then moved on. And when I moved on, I cemented myself uh, at 10 years at Everton. And I think he can do that at yep. Forest. It's not easy because here's the pink elephant in the room. If you're an American and you're playing in the Premier League, you better be good every day. Mm -hmm. You better be good every day and not for a year, not for yep. a game. Because for as much as some people on the couch want to say, oh, the, the landscape's changed for Americans, it has not. It has not. I think Kristen Pulisic did a brilliant job. I do. I do. People, people will criticize me. Is I think- it? When he was called upon in that Chelsea team, if he was Dutch or Italian or anything else, he'd still be in the team. He wouldn't be the first one pulled off the pitch. He wouldn't be a substitute. He's that good. Uh, and he's showing that at Milan now. And so as an American, it's tough. You got to prove it every day. But Matt has it. Matt has the mentality, man. Matt has, he's, he's a dog, you know, and I think you have to I think you have to have that. Yeah. Let's move to the number nine position. As a goalkeeper, you oftentimes get to see things that we don't as center forwards. I am a massive fan of both Ricardo Pepe and Florian Balogun. Two different reasons, though. I think Balogun is a player that gives you a completely different profile yeah. that we've never had. But Ricardo Pepe, at a young age, was told after starting in all the World Cup qualifiers, mm. then the World Cup comes, you know what? You're not good enough. We're not going to take you. There's a chip on his shoulder throughout his entire life to represent his family from El Paso, Texas, through FC Dallas, now over to Do Holland. He's been fantastic. He got a goal in both games. I think Balogun shows you something else. Tim, do we finally have two number nines? And I would throw Josh Sargent into the mix eventually when he's healthy again. Yeah. Do we all of a sudden have a nine that complements the entire complexion of the other players around that? Uh, I mean, I'm reluctant to anoint that title just yet, but, yeah. but I think it's important when you look at the history of, of the U.S. men's national team, the, our success has always been predicated on consistent goal scorer, someone who can do it in friendly, someone who can do it in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, someone who can do it on the world stage. And it's always ever been, and I know sometimes, particularly with this current team, you can do it by committee because they have such good wingers and midfielders. But ultimately, a U.S. men's national team has to have a Clint Dempsey, a Josie Osdor, a Brian McBride, where in moments you go into a game, it could be a big game yes. and it could be against an opponent where you might not dominate the ball. And you're looking at it and you're saying, if in two hours we've won this game, I know he'll have scored. And we've seen it down the years. Josie Altidore put five people on his back and he scored. Clint Dempsey pulled a rabbit out of the hat. Brian McBride stuck his head in a place he shouldn't have. There's always been that down the years for the last two decades. And so I think what's missing from this current group is that, and I think it was missing going into the World Cup. I and agree. So what I do think about Balogun and, and Pepe is they can start to sharpen each other, right? If one scores and the other one's thinking, I've got to get the bit between my teeth and I've got to make sure I keep pushing. And then that then sends them back to their clubs and then they push harder. And so, yeah, a recognized goal scorer, but someone who does it consistently, that, that, that is greedy and hungry, doesn't want to come off the pitch, is angry when they don't get the ball. That's the type of number nine that the U.S. needs. And I think they're, yeah, I think they're, those two can do it. I, I, I like the look of them. Again, they both present two different options. Yes, and in that 
gives you something where with McBride, with Clint Dempsey, Josie Altador, they were all eerily similar in a weird way. Yeah. Balligan's different. Pepe's different. And Josh Sargent's different. So it is a complexion. But none of the three in a big game yet, as you've said, can be the reliable person. And I think that over the next three years yeah. is the most important topic yeah. in question for Greg Berhalter, you've got to know you have a legitimate nine, which begs the question, how long are you going to say, well, he plays 45, this guy plays 45. At some point, you've got to say, this is my guy. Mm. And it's going to be interesting to see which one over this club season is going to say, no, 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 going into Copa America, mm -hmm. this is my position. It's going to be there. i got a trivia question for you. It's going to blow your mind away. Who is the last Monaco player to score for the U.S. men's national team? Great question. I'm, I I feel dumb because when you say it, I want to know it, but I don't know. Give it, give it to me. No, nope. you're not going to know it because I didn't know it. Freddie Adu. Holy cow. Freddie Adu was the last Monaco player to score for the U.S. men's national team. When I saw that, I was like, there's no way Tim's going to know it because I sure as hell didn't know in it. In fairness. And more so, I didn't even know Freddie played for Monaco. <laughs> in fairness, Freddie's had more teams in the history of soccer. And next trivia, next trivia question, I'm just going to say Freddie because God bless him. He's played for 15 teams. You should. <laughs> My God. God bless it. It's going to be, you're going to, you're going to have a 25% chance of answering the question. <laughs> Correct. Correct. You know what I mean? One of my favorite players, Tim, I've really enjoyed watching. I think one of the dual nationals that has got me the most intrigued is Eunice Musa. Mm. And the reason why, I can't believe he's still 20. Because oftentimes, I don't know about you, Tim, when I watch him play, there's a maturity to his game that's well beyond being 20. Mm -hmm. Tyler Adams wasn't part of this camp mm -hmm. in these two games. I am on the fence, but I'm leaning towards getting off this fence that I think the U.S. men's national team may be better if Eunice Musa is the six and not Tyler Adams. Tell me why I'm right or wrong. No, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, lo I love Tyler. I, I love his his ability to, to retain the ball, to break up plays, to facilitate in the in the middle of the park. This is an this is an intriguing conversation to have because when I look at the midfield and I look at Weston McKinney and I look at Christian and Tyler Adams and Musa, there may not be enough positions to go around, and I, and I think that's a great thing. I think yep. it's a great thing when you start to get into, let's face it, what's most important you know, tournament play, Copa America, World Cup, you start, the biggest issue is, you know, how is U.S. going to do? When are they going to get beyond certain stages in the World Cup? I think you can only do that when you're able to change specific players in your 11 and not have a drop-off, right? And so whether Musa is the answer at the number six, right, going into a tournament format, which for me is, I could care less about friendlies, right? Like friendlies are important, but ultimately, right. what, what's the ultimate goal? And the ultimate goal is, to perform at a level 10 every four days over the course of a month, right? Mm -hmm. And if you have the ability to not only plug plug like for like, but also change shape and put get your best players on the field, and maybe there's a point where you say, I got to have Musa and I got to have Tyler on the field. Okay, you play a double six, right? And then you change the formation ahead of them. So I, I think it's a good problem to have. And so often in the US, which we haven't had, and we just talked about this number nine, I like when there's competition for places. Agreed. I like when players have to keep themselves fit, yes. go back to the club and go, oh, you know, Coach Borald, Greg, whatever they call him, what do I need to play? Well, 
in order to play for me, you got to play the next 10 games in your club. Okay, cool. Head down. I'm going to do, do that. So when you create competition for places, it lifts the entire team. Yep, I agree. And the reason why there's something intriguing about Musa, listen, Tyler Adams is on the field for me. I'm not saying mm. he's not on the field. Sure, sure. But Musa, to me, has an ability to play between the lines Ready? under pressure. Okay. The ability to progress the ball at the highest of levels. Yeah, listen, if he's playing at a high level regularly in Serie A, now all of a sudden in a league that's very, very highly regarded tactically, I just think Musa gives you something. Tyler Adams' one issue, you know this, Hi. everyone in England's telling us this, is that he gets the ball, he retains the yeah. ball, but can he progress the ball at an elite level? Right. And the debate is still there with Tyler yeah. Adams. He's on the field for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. But, but Musa has that little extra bit that you can't teach, Tim. Well, I think That's you, all. the only reason why I'm asking that question. No, no, I think, look, I, I, in today's game, you've got to be able to be brave on the ball. You've got to be able to check your shoulder, know that, particularly the way that Greg wants to play, the way that a bunch of uh, coaches in the Premier League want to play. You have to take the ball under pressure. You have to take the ball under pressure in very risky spots. And you have to have the bravery, you have to have the technical ability, and you have to have the football IQ. And when you look at Timothy Way, when you look at Christian Pulisic, when you look at Musa, and they, these players have that, right? Uh, Gio Reyna, they have the ability to make people miss, create numbers of advantage, dip a shoulder, make sure that defenders are off balance. They have that ability. And so if you can get Musa a bit higher up the pitch, particularly with Tyler on the field, yeah, I, I think the way he, as you mentioned, plays between lines is special. Yep. I want to go to the left-back position Throughout this conversation, you've had one constant theme, multiple players at each position to create, I would say, competition. Yeah. The left-back position, I'd argue right now, doesn't have that. Yeah. Now, people listening are going to say, well, no, Robinson can be tested by Serginho Dest. No, Anthony Robinson right now is your left-back. Sure. That is the only left-back sure. that Greg Berhalter has in a big game. Would you agree with me that Lund impressed enough to, one, get multiple more looks, but two, that is a position that Greg's got to figure out, I think, with Serginho Dest at times looking more comfortable as a right back than he does as a left back. Yeah, I tend to think he Dest is, is very comfortable at the right back position. I think we saw that last night. I'm less concerned from a fullback standpoint, from a back four standpoint. I am... I believe in, you know, when you talk about playing every four days in major competitions, I, I do believe that your back four and your goalkeeper don't change very often. Okay, there has to be competition for places. Yep. There has to be an option if a guy gets a niggle or or a injury that you can replace him. Lund looked very good, very confident. Yeah, and did. I think it's I think it's important that you have someone like Robinson to look up to to play in the Premier League regularly. That's not that's not afforded to a lot of Americans, and he solidified himself week in week out. There's a lot to learn from him, and I think that you can do that as an understudy. You can push him. You know, you, you then you go at some point from an understudy to competition, right? And I think that could be a good thing. But in terms of a back four and goalkeeper, I don't believe you change that very often. I think you wrap them in cotton wool. You give them everything they need. They are their own unit, and you allow them to be that. And I don't think you change because that continuity is important. So what's the biggest thing we take away from these two games, Tim? Um. I think look, and I know the 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 world FIFA calendar is 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 log jams, right? And so you can't get the best competition always, and that that's a hindrance to to teams like the U.S. who I think need to, you know, I remember when Bob Bradley took over the team. I'll never forget it, and I, I'm thankful for it. <laughs> you know, he took over the team. He said, "Pack your bags. We're going to Europe as often as humanly possible. We're going to play on big nights 
in tough arenas. And we're going to do that and we're going to do it every single opportunity. Now, because of Nations League and all the rest of it, that's not uh, something that you can do every single window. But this window was, I think we all left a little bit disappointed. The, the score lines don't reflect the performances, uh, but the, in that there were some good performances. Ultimately, from a tactical standpoint, I still believe, I like the way we play, I do. I think there are moments when certain players are asked to do too much, which, okay, you have to figure that out, um, particularly in terms of ball possession and possession. But when I see the U.S. get into the final third and they do it well, I would like to see more sustained possession, right? We get the fullbacks high. We get Christian over to the to the strong side of the ball. We create a numbers advantage. I don't always think in those moments, particularly against teams like Oman and Uzbekistan and lesser opponents, in my in my opinion, you don't have to go. Once you get there, which is one of the hardest things in football, it's the second hardest thing to do, right? Scoring goals and then penalty area entries. We get in and around the box. We just need to camp out. We have the players that do it, make people miss, unbalanced defenders. If you have enough possession, 20, 30 passes, right in and around the penalty area in the final third, you'll start to suck players out and you'll create opportunities. We don't always have to go. And in those moments, we're a good enough team. And that's just about a mentality switch, is knowing that you're good enough to pin teams back. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. Do you think in this second stint from Greg Berhalter, we're going to see new ideas or at the very least an openness to new ideas? Or do you think it's more beneficial for Greg and the players that he continuously regurgitates the same message over the previous four years? Because now he gets the luxury of saying, it's almost my club team at the international level. Yeah where I'm implementing the same ideas, so now all of a sudden there's an identity. I think that's a real issue mm. that a lot of managers don't have, but now it's like, do I bring in new ideas or more so do I say, no, I allow this young group to progress with the same ideas for another three years? I think the fundamental baseline has to be there, right? But with any good yep. with any good yep. team and any good manager, once you get those in place and you just know, okay, look, we we could all take a test and we could all ace this test, right? No matter what it is, my top players yep. have the answer. Then I think you start throwing wrinkles in, right? So if you, as an example, T, if you naturally play with one six, if a certain game calls for it and you play with a double six, okay, you're not completely upsetting anybody. You're, you're not confusing anybody. Yep. You're just throwing a wrinkle in this. We're not changing because we're scared. We're changing because this gets us up to feel better, whatever. So I do think... Greg will have to, and I think he will, implement a couple new wrinkles into the team. But I think the foundation of the team and the way that they play should continue to be that, right? I, I don't think you can necessarily go away from that. I, you always need a another way of playing a plan B, if you like. But for the most part, you kind of got to get plan A down pat. And I don't think that's quite there yet. It'll it'll get there. But once you do that, you know, again, part of that throwing a wrinkle in here or there is getting your best players on the field. And sometimes getting all of your best players on the field for a singular game means you might have to go away from something that is, is part of your fabric. Yep, which is extremely important. And I think it's going to be very interesting. You, you and I have now been in the media world where this international schedule has completely changed right. with Nations League and whatnot. So the fact that the United States men's national team gets to play Germany yeah. this next window, Tim, I think it's arguably the most important friendly that they're going to have before Copa America yeah. next year, I think you would agree with me. Obviously, we don't know who they're going to play leading into Copa America, as there's always one or two friendlies. But the point being is you've got Germany. Yes, they're vulnerable. Yes, they're the not the Germany that we've seen in the past. But what does the United States and Greg need to get out of that? You've got to have 
your best team on the field in difficult moments as much as possible, right? And so the Germany game will provide a bunch of difficult mm -hmm. moments. And what you want is your entire collective to be together. You want your best players, you want partnerships to have to go through tough moments because that then pays dividends in Copa America and down the line in the World Cup. But if you don't have that, which I don't think they had in the lead up to the last World Cup, that's when you struggle because we know Agreed. At, at the top level, those difficult moments, those difficult games are going to come thick and fast. And if you're not prepared to handle them, if you haven't had your entire group together to be in those trenches and that fire together, it's di it's difficult. And so I think the Germany game will provide that opportunity. Your Bob Bradley teams, mm -hmm. Tim, think of the friendlies you guys got. Spain, what was it? Three times. Yeah. Brazil, three or four times. Yeah. Argentina, you got that. Now because of the international no. schedule changing- you actually get few and far uh, between those experiences yeah. to help shape you yeah. as a group. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I think with Bob playing Argentina, playing Poland and Poland, playing France at Parc de Prince, it, it, you know, I remember games where I'm thinking, I don't want to go on that field. I'm scared to death walking off that bus. And and to be able to yep. get that feeling in a friendly is unmatched because that's what will happen at the World Cup in Copa America. And so the more opportunities this team can get, uh, certainly starting with Germany, the better. Tim, we got one last question for you. It comes from one of our listeners. It's Alex in the D.C. area. And for our listeners who don't know, Tim's development at the youth level was in Major League Soccer with the New York Metro Stars, now known as the New York Red Bulls. And Tim, Alex asked this question. How is youth soccer in the United States going to be more prevalent on the world stage? Does MLS Next and that expansion help that development over the next 10, 15, and 20 years? Alex, we, we, we've only got a half an hour for this show. That's going to take four days. Um, uh, you, you, uh, youth development in, in America. Good, good Lord. Um, yeah. we, we you're, li um, you're living it with your daughter right now, my man. You're living it. I'm living it with my daughter. And like I said, I can write a, I can write a book on, on what not to do. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think, we, I, I think ultimately we have been late bloomers. You and I are both late bloomers. Most of our national team up until very, very recently ha have been. And there's a reason for that because I think developmentally we're behind at the youth level. And, you know, does that change over the next 10 or 15 years? Maybe, but it hasn't changed in a long time. And so, you know, I, I think the best thing that we can do is get our young players in top training environments into MLS Next, into academies, that football is the most important thing. And going back to the start of this podcast, you said that you're making kids uncomfortable where they go home and they're not happy. That's that's how they do it in the rest of the world. And and for so long in America, it, it hasn't been that way. And I, I think you, I think there has to be joy in, in, in playing sports at a, at a young age, no question. But if you're asking me how to develop top players, they've got to be put to the test at a very young age. Because your generation and I, we didn't know from 17 to 21 what that yeah. was. And that's where the crux of the issue was in the United States. I'll say this, having seen the development very quickly of MLS Next, but where that's going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road, I, Tim, I don't know how to quantify that. They now have a base, a foundation to test players, to put players into situations. Tim Howard with the New York Metro Stars <laughs> with Project 40 was traveling all over the world to just find a training in a game. Tim, the fact that there's going to be 30 academies directly within the pipeline of the MLS franchises, that in and of itself, you and I have no idea what that is. Yeah. That wasn't around. Correct. That wasn't around. So to answer Alex's question, obviously it's going to be better than anything Tim or I dealt with, 
but it's got to be within the line of progression the way the rest of the world is, and we're still playing catch-up in certain areas, but exponentially it's different than anything you and I did, and we're not that old. We're both 43 years old, dude. We're not that old in the sense where you're like, wait a minute here. Uh This is way different than anything we experienced. Yeah, And, and like I said, if you can get these academies within touching distance of of the MLS clubs and the coaching uh, is at a very high level because that's also very important because, you know, when you talk about development, I, I think that even the coaching development lacks at times in this country. And so we have to make sure that we get the right kids in the right environment, but alongside the right coaches. Tim Howard, future U.S. men's national team Hall of Famer. Buddy, this was fun. Uh, I guess you get my vote for the Hall of Fame. Appreciate you, brother. Whatever. I wouldn't expect anything less, but thank you. You can buy me dinner. <laughs> I, I always do. <laughs> uh, love you, brother. I love you, dude. Man, good to see you. I always appreciate catching up with my good buddy, Tim Howard. Amazing to think he still rates Zach Steffen. I do, too. Zach Steffen didn't go to the World Cup. I wonder how motivated he is to prove Greg Berhalter wrong in chasing down that number one from Matt Turner. But I also appreciate Tim taking time answering some of our listener questions. We've got more of those. Now, remember, you can call me, text me, email me anytime. Shoot me a message at 646-571-8496. That's 646-571-8496. You can email me at offsidepod with Taylor at gmail.com. I love getting your messages, so keep them coming, and I want to get into it right away. First off, Christopher, New York Red Bull fan, he says, quote, this season has been disappointing for a number of reasons. Curious your take on the Red Bulls GM saying the club plans to make significant investment in the roster of 2024. Christopher, my man, um, one, I'm sorry, because I think Troy Lesane's done a fantastic job with the job at hand and with the roster at hand. But this is the New York Red Bulls, and I was in that building when the Red Bulls played Inter-Miami. And the New York Red Bulls are selling Inter-Miami's Lionel Messi jersey. And knowing the New York fan as well as I do, and how upset they were with that, it's been a long time since we saw Thierry Henry, Tim Cahill, Rafa Marquez, and that whole group. New York needs stars. They need stars. What the Red Bulls have done with their academy, tip of the cap, well done. But the fans deserve more. The fans deserve more commitment from Red Bull Global in putting on a product and investing in high-quality players. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about a completely different equation. Now, the next question is the similar topic, different situation, though. Massimo from Toronto. How do you fix Toronto FC? The appointment of John Herman is a step in the right direction, but I assume many more changes will be made. Opposite of the New York Red Bulls, Toronto spends money top to bottom, arguably more than anyone in this league. Their academy, their development, their physical structure, their ability to make sure the first team's taken care of, and then buying players for the first team. Insigne, Bernadeschi, top to bottom, they've spent more money than anyone. Yet this is the third time that Bill Manning, the president, has to restructure the front office and the coaching staff, and the roster. Now, they're doing the best that they can getting rid of some salaries. Mark Anthony Kay, Matt Hedges, to name a few. But John Herdman is an interesting hire from my perspective. He's never been a club coach. 
He's only been a national team coach. It's a completely different kettle of fish. So now you've got to get a good understanding of what John Herdman wants to do daily, not monthly, because monthly is what you do on the international schedule. Daily is what you do on the club schedule. I I don't know that answer because I don't think it's a quick fix. The good news is they've got ownership that want to spend money, and oftentimes spending money can fix things. But as we've seen with Bill Manning in charge, it hasn't always rectified and fixed it immediately. And I think Toronto's an interesting one. But I've always been a fan of Toronto because their ownership goes for it every single year, and they allow the people in charge, for better or worse, to make those decisions. Next up, Will... Great question here. With MLS having so much momentum right now with Messi, who do you think the next big star is to come to Major League Soccer? I'm going to make this abundantly clear. There's only one Messi. Okay, The 1A, 1B, that would be Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, to answer your question, the next big star, Antoine Griezmann is going to be in Major League Soccer. Now, is he going to be this winter? I don't know. He wants it to be. Antoine Griezmann is going to be in Major League Soccer. And then in the next 18 to 24 months, I would be shocked if Neymar doesn't follow that. Next up, Scott asked, on a previous episode, you mentioned four young players you wanted to see called into this U.S. camp. Kermaski, he made his debut. Buck, Gutierrez, McGlynn. What do you like about each and who has the highest ceiling? First off, all four are progressive players, young players, dynamic players that all offer you something different. I love Buck. I know he's gone on to the England U19s. I know in his press conference, he talked about not getting enough love from U.S. soccer. I I don't know if I agree with that. Gareth Southgate didn't call him. Greg Berhalter called him. But you can't tell someone where their heart lies. Right now, for Buck, that lies with England. Go on and get it. You scored a goal in your second appearance with the England U19s. Good on you. He's as dynamic of a midfielder as I've ever seen. A two-way player, a player that can score goals. Kramaski's got an unbelievable engine. He's done a fantastic job learning on the fly, playing next to Busquets, playing into those gaps into the midfield. He's got a great engine. I love his propensity to learn. Gutierrez, fantastic technical midfielder. The only thing I want more from him is something in the final third, but I want to see Gutierrez with the national team as quickly as possible. One of the few bright spots for the Chicago Fire over the past 12 to 18 months. And Jack McGlynn continuously gets calls from Ireland. You've got to call him in. This is a player that under Jim Curtin in the Philadelphia Union, shown the ability to have vision in all parts of the field Technically, the ability to play in between the lines, the ability to open up the game with the final pass. All four players, dual nationals, deserve the right to get into the U.S. team. And if I'm the U.S. soccer leadership, get them in, get them tied up, get them into the equation so you know they're part of their future. The final question is from Matthew a big Revs fan. This is along the same lines of Noel Buck. I think I just answered it for you, Matthew. But the future with the U.S. men's national team, it's not over. It's not over. I don't know what Noel's going to do. I don't know what his family wants. He went on to play with England U19s. But I know from Greg Berhalter's perspective, he rates him. I know Matt Crocker's perspective, they rate him. But you need to allow each individual to find themselves. It's not a black and white answer. And so right now, 
Buck and his family, they want to ex- exhaust the England way. And if he does it, great. But I don't think his future with the U.S. men's national team is over. I appreciate all of your questions. Continuously send them in. I appreciate you listening to another episode of Offside. Tim Howard was fantastic. And I hope the New England Revolution storyline is moved on to the Supporter Shield in the Eastern Conference playoff race. We've got homegrown MLS players pulling on the shirt alongside seasoned European pros that are, what, 24, 25? The fact that Christian Pulisic may be the second oldest player on this roster, that's gross. Anyways, I'm old. There's a lot to be excited about. See you next week. I'm back to Messi Mania. Offside with Taylor Twoman is a Major League Soccer podcast produced by Apple TV and Rain Delay Media. Our executive producers are Peter Moses and John Yales. John was our editor. Michael Janot was our engineer. Jonah Buchanan is our associate producer. Jonah and Iggy were our researchers. Music was composed by Brian Decker. And I'm your host, Taylor Twoman. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts. He's been a national team coach his whole career. It's a completely different kettle of fish. I'm choking right now. Oh, it got me good. Taping a podcast for that long. All right, here we go. I'll start that. John, you want me to do similar question? That way it gets right into it.